Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Today with Tom Thibodeau, former head coach of the Chicago Bulls and Minnesota Timberwolves. Stay with us. Tom Thibodeau, the former head coach of the Chicago Bulls, Minnesota Timberwolves, the 11th all-time winningest coach by percentage in NBA history, about 59%, 352 and 246 in eight seasons. And riding out the pandemic in his native central Connecticut. Tibbs, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Woj. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are, you've got a place in Connecticut. I know your mom still lives there. Some of your family still lives there. You grew up there with your parents, your dad, of course, Tom Sr., who is a like like myself, a St. Bonaventure guy, so I know there was always oh, a lot of <laughs> yeah, some. There's always a little bit of Bonnie's gear in the Thibodeau house. No clue. Uh, now, Tibbs, New Britain. I, I imagine you did not play much pickup basketball with Paul Manafort um, in his days. One of one of the more recently famous New Britain natives. Uh, but but my one of my favorite basketball players from childhood. You know, I grew up down the road in Bristol, and he was older than me, but I really remember him more from UCLA. Rocket Rod Foster. There had to be, given your stature as a player in New Britain, I know you're a couple years older than Rod Foster, Tibbs, there had to be some some pickup ball. He went to St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. You went to New Britain High. But you had to have crossed paths with Rod Foster on the court somewhere. Yeah, he came onto the scene, uh, just like his nickname, the Rocket. And uh, I think he was uh, either a freshman or a sophomore when I was finishing up, and everyone heard about him, and I had never seen anyone that fast in my whole life. And it was amazing, and he's a, he, he's a great guy and obviously had a great career. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, an injury cut it short, uh, but he was a terrific player. And uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, which is no longer in existence, uh, Lamar Odom actually spent a, a year there as well. Yes, yes, he did. That was a, uh, well, that's a long story. Yeah. J- Jerry DiGregorio was his guy. Jerry brought him. Jerry, it's funny. The first beat I ever covered, now we're getting into Connecticut high school, junior college. The first beat I ever covered for the Waterbury Republican American was Mattituck Community College in Waterbury. Yeah. And Jerry DiGregorio was the coach. They went like 33 and one. Jerry went on to become the head coach at URI. And then he was an assistant with the Clippers, Warriors, and but he was Lamar Odom's guy. So he got the job at Aquinas, and then I think Gary Charles and Sonny, I don't know if Gary Charles sent him up. He was there, and then he kind of went as a package to URI with Jim Herrick with him. And and well, um, well, Jerry comes from a great family in, in New Britain, and so I've known him a long time. And then, of course, Aquinas had a, a great basketball history. Uh, and unfortunately, the the school did close. And you had mentioned Paul Manafort earlier. And when I was growing up, his dad was the mayor, and <laughs> was phenomenal. Did a great job. And uh, so it's a uh, it's a small town. It's our secret, you know, not quite like Bristol, but it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not quite. Uh, hey, hey, Tibbs, when you look at when you put yourself in the place of uh, coaches this season who would be coming out of this shutdown for three months and trying to figure out how they're going to, let, let's say among the contenders, 
and how they're going to try to ramp up with individual workouts, a training camp, and then a little regular season, but right into the playoffs. Is there any outside of a lockout? And it's a lockout's the most similar thing, but it's different. You're going to the start of the season, not the end of it. How would you imagine trying to manage a roster, the health? You're going to get guys back in all different shapes. Some are going to be in great shape. Some are going to be less than. What, what do you think the challenge is going to be for, let's say, Doc Rivers, Frank Vogel, Mike Budenholzer, Brad Stevens, teams that think that they can make a run here? Well, you're hitting on something that's huge, uh, particularly for all those teams, because even with a uh, lockout, you sort of have an idea based on all the times that it's happened before. And you know you, it could start up at any time. Some guys are going to come back in better shape than others. Uh, it's a condensed schedule, and you can manage that because you're starting at the beginning. So you can get guys that I know in 99 when I was with the Knicks, we, we started, uh, slowly, uh, Marcus Cammy and Latrell Sprewell got hurt and it was only a 50 game season. And then they, they were healthy at the end and we had to win, uh, nine out of 10 or just to get the eighth spot. And we ended up going to the finals that year, but we really weren't an eighth seed. We were an eighth seed because those guys weren't healthy at the beginning of the year and they were healthy at the end. Uh, and Jeff Van Gundy was the head coach, did a terrific job with that team. Uh, and then this is different because it's at the end of the season and you don't know how guys are going to come back. And you also don't know what the playoffs will look like. And if this should have to change to a five game series, there's a huge difference between a five game series and a seven game series. So, uh, if a higher seed team can steal one of those first two games. Now they go home with a chance to win it. You're going to see more upsets. And if someone takes on an injury and the hard thing is to, you know, to make sure your guys are still working because you don't know when it'll resume and hopefully it does resume, but there's so many variables and no one's ever dealt with this before. So I think how you manage it is, you know, we're in uncharted waters, but I think it's critical, particularly for those teams up at the top. Yeah, and Adam Silver told the players last week, and I think he's reiterated it, he would like to have seven-game series in each uh, each round of the playoffs. I think they've got to try to legitimize this champion if, the best they can, and having three months off, or three and a half months off, makes it harder. And I think, and listen, come on, the league doesn't want, <laughs> they don't want eight seeds beating one seeds, especially especially in the West, they don't want that. But it's funny, when you think of that lockout year, that Miami Knicks series in 99, you know, when I think back to, there's been, I think of a couple 1-8 series where the one seed and the eight, ser- eight seed, the the gap usually feels pretty significant. That year, like you said, the Knicks team got off to a slow start. You were incorporating a lot of, you were incorporating Spreewell and Camby into the team and their, and I think especially Camby's role gathered steam as he went on and, and, and played more. And that Miami team was just reminded me of your 2011 team, 2011, 12, when you came out of the lockout, Derek Rose gets hurt pretty quickly into that season. You get the one seed, your team and that Miami team remind me of how you guys were hard playing. It wasn't 
that Miami team didn't have a superstar. It had lots of very, you know, Tim Hardaway's still very good. Well, I guess Alonzo Morning was on that team. Yeah. So that was yeah. Morning was an elite, elite player. But I just remember so that that Miami New York series won eight, and then a few years later, the Nets Indiana best of five that went five games and Reggie Miller almost stole it at the end. I just remember the talent disparity didn't feel as great as you'd normally see in a one eight, but you're right. It, when you make that a five game series, you are, um, that that's the recipe for an upset. Yeah. You know, in, uh, you mentioned the, the entry to Derek and actually, you know, I used that in Chicago, the experience in New York. And what I tried to sell the team was that the first half of the year, we wouldn't have Derek, but if we could hang in there and be around 500, and if Derek came back the second half of the season, and hopefully we would have the seven or eight seed, we really wouldn't be a seven or eight seed. And uh, because of that experience that uh, in New York, that's what I tried to sell the team. And of course, Derek wasn't able to come back. Uh, but that team had the belief at the all-star break, we were in position, we ended up making the playoffs and that team played well. And so, uh, there are situations in which, you know, either an injury, a significant player comes back and now your team is, is a lot better, but usually there is a huge disparity. And I think that's the big difference between college and the NBA. In college, it's a, it's a one game NCAA playoff game and either you advance or you, you go home. Uh, and you see a lot of upsets because it's a 40 minute game. If you make threes, uh, you, there, there could be a big upset in, in the, in the NBA where it's a seven game series. It's hard to beat a team with a lot more talent, you know, four times. Tibbs, how do you learn? How do you learn to become a, a good playoff coach? How much of it is? You were on the bench with Jeff, and you guys were in the postseason a lot as, as an assistant in both uh, New York and then Houston. But once you're once you get into a series as a head coach, and you're making decisions on any number of things, which sometimes it's as simple as you know, people always say, "Make adjustments, make adjustments." Well, sometimes you're what what they're really saying is, "Go away from everything you believe in and what you've done." And and on the fly, just try something completely new. That doesn't work. That, but there is a fine line between going, okay, we we've got to tweak this. Is that how did you learn to become and become more comfortable in the postseason, making decisions and and uh, it, trying to advance? Yeah, I think all your experiences uh, help teach you that. The more playoff games that you're in, the the better understanding you have of the playoffs. And you think about the teams that have uh, gone deep into the playoffs, the characteristics that they had, and also the understanding of what a seven-game series looks like. So when you're planning for your season uh, in the summer, you're thinking about all the things that you're going to need at the end. And then you map that out throughout the course of the year from training camp to the beginning of the season, throughout the season. So when you do get to the playoffs, you, you have an understanding that in a seven game series, you better have a diversification to your offense where you can get your primary scores the best shots possible because what works in one game will probably not work in the next game. And there has to be a base that's built on fundamentals. So there's counters. When they do this, we do that. 
and there has to be read. You have to have the ability to think on your feet. So you're looking for those requirements uh, and uh, characteristics in your players as well. Uh, but I think experience is a big teacher in that. And also you know, looking at the makeup of the team. So what are we going to need uh, in the playoffs to deal with a certain uh, superstar? Because the stars in the playoffs are the ones that you, you have to make commitments to. They're going to require you to put more than one person on the ball. That's going to lead to other things. And you have to be able to cover your basket, you know, the paint and then react out. And obviously the line, uh, the three point line is so important, but also understanding how to play hard without fouling, uh, to be committed defensively and then offensively, how to get the best shots uh, possible. Tibbs, I, I assume you watched the last dance on the the on ESPN the Jordan Bulls series. I did, I did. When you think back, listen, you were in the building for a lot of those playoff games. You were, I'm sure, the ones that you weren't in the building for, you watched on tape a hundred times, so you were familiar with some of those series and games. Was your perspective and watching it now as to how it compared to living in the moment? What, what was the contrast, if any, there? Well, it was fascinating for me because, uh, obviously in the nineties, being with the Knicks, I saw it from that vantage point and then ha- having the opportunity to coach in Chicago and getting to know a lot of the people that were around him, uh, and to understand, you know, how they felt about him and the things he did. And then they also had a lot of, uh, video of practices. So I had a chance to, to watch the practices and then I got to know Michael. Uh, and so I felt, uh, you know, like I wish there were a hundred episodes, you know, you could just watch it and the impact he had and the way he was wired, uh, just, uh, it made him so unique and so special. Uh, but also the way he drove everyone in that organization. Uh, and I think championship teams, have that internal driving force that are like uh, a Michael Jordan. I know in Boston we had, we had Kevin Garnett, and he was that guy. I think when you look at every uh, championship team, I know from talking to Brendan Malone how he felt about Isaiah Thomas and how he was that guy for them in, in Detroit. And you talk to the people in Boston about Bird and how how he was, and you know in other sports you, you look at a, a Brady and what he meant to, uh, to the Patriots. I think you need to have that type of leadership. And so oftentimes, you know, there's, there's going to be the tough decisions and you're going to have to drive guys and they may not like you all the time. But I know like when you talk to those guys now, when you get them by themselves, they're very proud of what they accomplished there and they should be. You said something there, Tibbs, when you became coach in Chicago, there was a library of those Bulls practices in the video room. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about that. So, you know, you, you have great curiosity because you hear the stories, uh, you know, about Michael. And, and as, you know, I got to know him a little bit once I got to Chicago. And so uh, I had some conversations and I was able to ask him, like, is this true? And he, um, and most of the stories he said, yes. <laughs> so, you know, once when you have like, those those uh, videotapes available and you're, you're watching them and you're gone. This is, this is incredible, you know, cause the, just the way he, he practiced all the time and uh, the way he, he, he led people 
um, you can see what a driving, how competitive he was. And, uh, and, and I think that was huge. That was the mark of that team. They were hard playing. They, they were well balanced. They were strong on both sides of the ball. Uh, and, you know, to, when you think about where they were before he got there and then what he did when he was there and then what happened after he left, I mean, it tells you about his greatness. Tibbs, when you think of how it ended there, and I always kind of feel whether it's in successful organizations or places where they're not having success, there's always two things that, and then sometimes both happen because most organizations are a little up and down. Not everybody's bad for a long time. Not everybody's great for, for any stretch, but that the two things that always to me tear apart, whether it's, it could be in the front office, coaching staff, locker room, uh, at the ownership level and all of them combined. Number one is the grab for credit when things are going well. And then the other thing is the passing of blame and the pointing of fingers when it's not. And you saw at the end, um, you know, the thing with Jerry Krause is, you know, it's like this whole argument of he deserves. It's like, listen, to me, there's two things can be true. He did an all time job of putting together not one, but two championship teams around Michael supporting cast. Inarguable. Hiring Phil Jackson out of the CBA, putting him with Tex Winter and giving him a system that obviously helped to, uh, and, and listen, it was a gutsy decision to fire Doug Collins after a conference final. Like the result had better have been like we're going to win championships and they did. And then at the end, Jerry might have been, Jerry was, was too quick to want to run Phil out and want to want to start over. Like both can be true. Um, when you think back, I always sense, Tom, that things for you started to change a little bit. You had this incredible first season, Derek's MVP, and you go to the conference finals and, you know, you get beat by a great Miami team. And then you have the lockout season and you win 50 games in a shortened season, best record in the East. And that sort of credit, who gets credit? I kind of always sense that that's what started some of the friction with management and you that kind of festered over the next few years until you left. When you look back at it, did, did that feel like a turning point for you? And there, is there anything different? Yeah, I think there were a lot of mitigating factors when I look back now. And obviously, uh, you know, having Derek at that level was special for us. He was so unique. And it was not only the greatness that he brought out of himself, but all his teammates as well. Uh, and then, you know, when I look back, I'd say 90% of my experience there was very positive. Uh, and then unfortunately, once he got hurt, the expectations stayed the same. And we didn't know, you know, we were hopeful that he would come back, uh, you know, after the all-star break of the next year. And obviously what he was saying was the truth. He wasn't ready to come back. Uh, and he was hurt for three consecutive years. And so I was really proud of what the team did to be able to continue on, make the playoffs each year. It was a credit to his teammates. And we weren't going to replace Derek with another player. It was impossible to do. The guy was an MVP at 22. Uh, but all the other guys, they grew, they, they sacrificed, they played great defense, they, they shared the ball, and we were able to win. And when you win – I think there's credit for everyone. And we saw that, uh, you know, in the last dance with, with, with all the credit that, you know, they were coach of the years, they were MVPs, all stars, 
uh, executive of the year. There's enough for everybody. And that's, that's the value of winning. Uh, but to get back to my experience in, in Chicago, I think, uh, for me, you know, like when sometimes when you're in the middle of it, you're just thinking, okay, how are we going to scratch out some wins? And you can get lost in that. And, you know, there, obviously there were things I felt I could have done differently. It wasn't management's fault that, you know, Derek got hurt and it wasn't my fault. It, it, it was our reality. And then you have to think about those things and how, you know, you can overcome them. But you also have to be willing to acknowledge, you know, in, in the, and have an appreciation for the job that everyone has to do. I know for me, like when I look back now and I think about, uh, having done the president's job in Minnesota, I have a much better understanding of the challenges that you face when you're in the, the seat of the general manager or vice president and things like that. So I think with both Gar and John, you know, I have an appreciation for what they did. They, they did a lot of great things there too. Uh, you know, I know drafting, uh, where, where we were drafting because we had a great record every year. You're at the end of the first round and to get guys like, uh, you know, a Jimmy Butler late, uh, uh, Nico Meritich, uh, uh, Taj Gibson, that's a credit to them. And so, um, I thought they did a great job. I thought our organization did a great job just to survive that. And, um, so, you know, I think you learn from your experiences. I think it's important to, you know, ask yourself, you know, what can I do better? And, you know, what, you know, you, you're, you're trying to make it the best possible situation for everybody. Looking back, when you think of that time, if you had said, maybe said that out loud more then, do you think it would have probably gone a long way with that group? That that would have been maybe your part in um, keeping the thing steadier than it was. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I learned, you know, when I was in Boston and, uh, you know, we had gotten there after a tough year in, in 08 and, and it was a challenge and obviously that to win the championship that in, in 08 was great and getting, uh, a Ray Allen and, uh, Kevin Garnett and some of the players that we were able to add. But, and Doc did a phenomenal job. But in that, uh, Danny Ainge was phenomenal in terms of like how he communicated with everybody. Uh, and it was almost on a daily basis. So you felt like if there was a disagreement or a debate on something, uh, even if you didn't totally agree with each other, you, you all, you had great respect for each other. And I think sometimes, you know, we're all guilty of, you can't allow the communication to break down. That has to continue throughout. So I think that was something that, that I learned from, from that. And, you know, I think that when you, you know, in this past year, just from traveling around and just seeing how much each organization has grown in terms of how many people there are, uh, from, you know, like your assistant coaches, your player development guys, your interns, your video guys, your analytics people, your sports scientists, your strength and conditioning people. I mean, it's just, it's an, a, a very large amount of people. And so everyone has to be communicating and working together to make the best possible decisions. 2010 Tibbs, when you interviewed for the Bulls job, got the Bulls job, you had gone a very long time in the league. I think you had interviewed for the Pistons job the year before and maybe the Kings, right? Were those the two head coaching jobs you had interviewed for? Yeah, the, uh, uh, I think I 
the Kings, I think three years in a row, I, was, <laughs> every year I, I, was on uh, <laughs> I, I interviewed, uh, uh, for, uh, it, it was New Jersey back then. Uh, right. So I inter- interviewed for the, uh, with them as well. And then I had some opportunities to go places, uh, as an associate head coach that, you know, I didn't feel it was the right thing to do. So I, I never did that. Yeah. And what was interesting was, so 2010, all of a sudden, um, you, you come off the great success in Boston and you go from having not been an offered a head coaching job anywhere to all at once, the Nets with Rod Thorne. I think the first offer you had was Jeff Bauer in New Orleans, who you had history with, and I think were very, very fond of him. And the Bulls job, though, was not as the process was not as far along. And I think that was the job you were eyeing and saying, like, that's what I'm trying to wait on. But how did what do you remember about that process where, again, you've never been offered a head job. You're waiting to see how the if you can get the Bulls job, if you can get the offer. I don't know that you'd even interviewed yet. And I think you had to say no to the other two before, like, you risked, what if I don't get Chicago and I don't get any of these and I've been waiting forever? What do you remember about sort of all of a sudden having these options and deciding, am I going to roll the dice? I've got two in hand or one in hand, but I'm going to wait on that one. Yeah, and I think you you have to trust your gut, and, and it's how you're wired. I think the thing that I enjoyed, I was around great coaches and great players, and I was part of great teams, whether it was the Knicks uh, in Houston with, with Jeff, and we had Yao and uh, Tracy McGrady. It was just a terrific team. And then, of course, to go uh, to Boston with Doc and you know Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, and to win a championship, you, you don't feel like you're missing out because being in big games, being a part of a big, uh, a, a great team, there's, uh, you know, a sense of accomplishment and that winning is what it's all about. And so, uh, you know, I, I think for somebody who hasn't played in, in the league, usually your path is going to be as an assistant coach and you have to win and then you get an opportunity. Uh, in some cases, it, it comes from being part of a bad team where they may fire somebody. And to me, I never wanted to get a job that way. I always wanted to get a job from being a part of something that was great and then getting an opportunity somewhere else. And so I had made that decision early on in my career. You had two periods of time here where you were able to have essentially a year to step away and sort of reevaluate between Chicago and Minnesota. And then since you've left Minnesota, you, you've had a window of time here. Was there any real difference between those breaks, how you handled it, how you viewed where your career was and, and how you wanted to sort of kind of move forward with it? Now, you know, the, the, I've always enjoyed traveling around and visiting, you know, different teams. And I, you know, I did that in 2016. Uh, I did it more early in the season training camp and that sort of thing. Uh, and then shifted more to college towards the end. In this situation, I spent more time. I, I did it throughout the course of the year. And, uh, it, it's interesting because it was a different perspective too, because you're going in and you're seeing people at different stages of the season. So you see in training camp 
Then you've seen the start of the season. Then you've seen like the holiday period and then post holiday and then the all-star break. So how that's managed, how practice is being handled, how your meetings are being handled. Um, so it's been interesting in the league. It never stays the same. It's always evolving and changing and you want to make sure you're keeping up with the times and you're getting good ideas and good ideas can come from anywhere. It could be, there's great coaches at every level. It could be a high school coach, junior college coach, division three, division two, division one, uh, the NBA could be a video guy, could be an intern that you're seeing like you're, you're getting a lot of good ideas. And I always felt that when you see someone in practice, you're seeing what they actually do and what the teaching points are and how it's being taught, how it's being managed, and all those things. And then you also, if you have the opportunity to sit in on the meetings, you get to see what the thought process behind making decisions, which is critical and it's fascinating to me. So I think how you can improve, you know, we're always asking, uh, you know, our players to improve. How do you get better? Well, I think that's how you get better is you watch, you know, other people that are great at something do it and then, you may borrow a few ideas from them and you have discussions with them. And I think that helps. And so I've always enjoyed that part of it. Uh, and then it's just a different perspective. And then when you're not in the middle of it, you what you miss the most is the competition and being around a group and the challenges that come with a season. Uh, you know, basically you have to solve problems every day and then keep your goal in mind and, and try to get there the best way possible. So you miss that part of it probably more than anything. But on the other hand, you also get to do things that normally you, you can't do, whether it be visit with, with your family, go on a vacation. Um, I'm renovating uh, a beach house in Connecticut right now. So, uh, you're, you're, you're renovating it or you're paying someone to renovate it? How's yeah, I'm, I'm watching someone. Yeah, renovate. okay. I want to <laughs> clarify that. Just trying to get out of their way. But <laughs> you talk about, listen, you love practice and you love, you believe in practice uh, and your team's practice. But when you're going around the league to pop in on different places, not everybody's practicing. And I imagine you go in in 2000 and, you know, in the year 2018, 19, when you're moving around and popping in on places, I bet you might go into a place for two or three days and leave and go, I really didn't see these guys practice. I mean, is that common now? Well, it's, it's interesting because the way everyone's managing it with, you know, uh, load management and where your team is, sports scientists. Uh, so it's, it's different. And if your team is young, uh, and, and you're in a rebuild, you're probably practicing more. Uh, than an older veteran team. Uh, in some cases where the team is mixed, there's almost like two practices going on in one where your young guys are, you know, getting the work that they need and the older vets w- might be in the weight room and, and, and doing strength and conditioning and then they flip it and then, the, uh, and then the, you know, the vets will, will get their work uh, and then they come together for a short period of time at the end to do something together. And maybe they'll watch film together also at the, at the end. So how you manage that, it's, it's been real interesting. And, uh, you know, the, in, in some cases, it probably different than, than you would think. Uh, and I had an opportunity, obviously, to spend a lot of time with Doc out in LA and he's phenomenal in just the way he managed the challenges of his season with, uh, Kwai and Paul coming off injury, uh, 
but you know, they, I was out there during one stretch, uh, for 10 days and they had five games and like, I couldn't believe the shoot arounds. I'm like, if I did that, they'd, they'd hang me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were, they were phenomenal, you know, but he also, you know, Doc's the best at managing, you know, the, the day before they, the, you know, in between they, they had that day off, but everyone came in and their young guys really worked. Uh, and the older guys were getting, uh, treatment and recovery, you know, so, uh, I think understanding who your team is and what everyone needs, uh, and also it's, there's probably more to it because you've got to be careful not to divide your team also. Tibbs, what if anything did you underestimate or not put enough stock in perhaps about being president and coach? I know you talked to a lot of people before you took the role on. Stan Van Gundy, who you're close with, was doing the job at the time. Uh, Doc was doing the job for a period. Is it exactly what you imagined it would be, the, the, the dual responsibility? Well, I liked the challenge of it, and I felt like I would learn a lot. And uh, I had an opportunity. I, I wasn't the general manager. So we had a general manager in Scott Layden that was there, and we had a, quite a large staff as well. Uh, so I did enjoy the, that aspect of it, but I also felt that I just learned about that perspective and how you're really looking at it two different ways. And so it gave me a much better understanding of what that looks like. I'm, I don't think I would want to do that again. And, uh, in just watching how, uh, how large the staffs have become, it's not only a general manager and, a, and an assistant general manager, it's now a president. Uh, general manager and multiple assistant general managers and everyone's bringing something to the table, uh, that's unique and adds to the group. And so just like you would do with a team of players, you want to make sure that you're, you're complementing all the people that you have in management with the right type of people, uh, and you're covering a lot of bases, but it's, it's a lot. The thing that's hard too, I think from, when you're in that position uh, is, you know, like with the agents and with the players in contracts, I think that's very difficult to do. It's an interesting point you bring up Tibbs about now you're the guy who's dealing with the agents and negotiating contracts. And I think going into it, a lot of guys think that how it's going to work is I think doc, you know, I think this was true with doc with the Clippers also and others that, it gives you, I think going into it, you think it gives you the hammer that players can't go around you to. You're the final voice and it gives you, and of course you get to choose the players. You get to decide the roster. But when the player, and, and I think maybe with Jimmy Butler, this became part of it. And the player sees you, he's not just seeing his coach. He's seeing in his mind, the guy who's not giving him the contract he wants at this moment right now, Jimmy came in and Russell Westbrook had gotten the renegotiation in Oklahoma City where if a team had cap space, then you could extend them and give them a raise off their current deal. And while you could have done that in Minnesota with, with Jimmy, you would have lost all your cap space. You could have improved the team. And I think there was an expectation on your part that when he was up for his extension, he'd get the full max extension. And he was going to get his money. And 
I think there was a year you had the space and then you didn't have the space. You would have <laughs> to do that. You would have had to just unloaded contracts to, it, it didn't make any sense. And it kind of felt like maybe at times Jimmy internalized that and that didn't become a positive for you with your relationship with him. Yeah. And those are all decisions that you have to make and you always have to do what you think is best for the organization. And Jimmy was phenomenal in terms of what he brought to Minnesota. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously getting to the playoffs, winning 47 games, but we also had the second best record in the West that year. And Jimmy got hurt after the all-star break, but we were 27 and 10 with Jimmy against the West, against a, a very loaded West. So he had great impact on the organization. Now, to your point, uh, what you're also looking at to be competitive in the West, you're thinking about uh, we can't give away assets for nothing and that we understand what we're going to have to do to keep Jimmy here down the road. Now that didn't work out, but every decision that you're, that you're making, you're thinking about, okay, what does it mean today? What does it mean? You know, next year, what's it mean three years from now? What, what's it mean five years from, from now? Because you have to look at all those things. Uh, and then to build a, a championship caliber team, like I think you need to have those type of players. And, uh, I think when we added Derek Rose, we ended up being six and three down the stretch with him. And I knew going into the next season that Derek was healthy. I thought we could have been a top two seed. If you went back and you looked at the starting lineup from 17, 18, you would see that we were, the starters were third in offense and seventh in defense. So if you're in top five in both, you have a chance. Now I knew I, I had to fix the bench, uh, but unfortunately it didn't work out that way. And you know, you move on. Tom, what do you, when Jimmy came to you about before his last season there, both of your last seasons there, I guess, when, when he came before the year and said, I want a trade. At that point, were you still trying to reason with him about how this, the roster was structured, how it would work going forward? Or was he just not mentally, was he just not accepting any of that conversation? Did you feel like, I don't know if I have a chance. Did you feel like you had a chance to still change his thought process on that, that over time you'd be able to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's the way you approach it. You feel like, okay, if we have Jimmy healthy with Carl and Andrew and, and Derek healthy, we're going to be pretty good. We're going to have a darn good team. And so you, you're trying to, you know, reason with him that way. But I also got it from his perspective. And uh, sometimes, you know, the, there's a hierarchy amongst the team that players feel a certain way. and so. Uh, you know, unfortunately it unfolded late and, uh, you know, you're trying to do what's best. So we, we knew at that time we were going to probably have to wait 20 games before teams would be willing and ready to give a, a, a good offer. Now I felt we did get a good offer from, uh, Philadelphia in, in getting, uh, Dario Saric and, and Robert Covington and a pick. And if you looked at what the team did after the trade, that team played very well. And I think it was simple, the record was something like 15 and 11 or 15 and 10, something like that with a plus 4.0 scoring margin, 
which is a pretty darn good team. So I thought we had assets to go forward even once Jimmy left. But obviously, with Jimmy being there, the when you dig into those numbers and you see the impact and the type of team that we had, I thought we were on our way. Tibbs, I, I believe you would like to coach again in the league. There's only 30 of these jobs, as you know. Um, and there's certainly not 30 jobs where you have confidence that there's a commitment to trying to win at a high level. Not everybody's as committed as the other. What, when you think about, you, you said, I don't want to run a team anymore. And, and as we know, that, that model is really kind of gone by the boards for the most part. What, what would you want out of another opportunity? What, what, what's the re, the relationship with management? marketplace what when you think of what it is you value and being a head coach in the league and the environment around you what what are you trying to find well i think you you want to be around people that you know are committed to winning that have character that you're you know they're going to be your partners in whatever you're doing and i think that's the challenge of our league and i know that when you have uh, people that are smart and have character and work well together. Good things can come out of that, and they sh- you want you want to share the same value system. And uh, every situation, there's going to be challenges. Uh, I know when I went to Chicago, uh, basically it was a 500 team. I went to Minnesota, you know, it was a, a rebuilding team, a 29 win team. So I've been through. Highs. I've been through lows. I go into Boston. I knew that was a great team. So I, I think all those experiences have helped me. Uh, but to answer your question, the big thing is just to be around good people and work as hard as you possibly can and try to win as many games as possible. And you know, you need some good fortune along the way. I think especially when things start to get sideways in a place, uh, Tom. You, you, you know, you start to hear the criticism of why it's not working or why uh, Tom Thibodeau doesn't fit into the way the league has changed. When you think about and you hear all the criticisms and, and as, a, as a job candidate, you've got to whether you agree with them or not or whether you say, OK, there's some truth in that. But I think you're missing this and this. What have you felt you've had to convince people of that's a misconception in your mind? Or what have you said? You know what? There's some there, there's some legitimacy to that criticism. How have you had to evaluate yourself? Uh, maybe coming out of Minnesota. Yeah, I think just like you would do with your own team, you do that with yourself. At the conclusion of every year, you look at the team and you say, "Okay, what did we do well? Uh, what did we do not as well as we would like? And what changes do we want to make?" And I think the same thing. You do it as, you know, with your team and then you do it with yourself. You say, okay, what did, what did, what do you feel that you did well? What do you feel like you could have done better? And what would you like to change? So I think that's an ongoing process. I don't think that ever changes. I think every year you have to do that. So you're always trying to add to what you know. And is there a better way to do something? And what were the mistakes that you made? And how can you improve uh, and learn from your mistakes? I think. We all learn probably more from our mistakes than we do our successes. So I think that's part of the equation. Um, and so I think, you know, the biggest thing is to 
as I said, the league is always changing. So you want to make sure that you're adapting as well. And then there's always variables in terms of, uh, uh, the style of play could change. You know, we're in the nineties. It was a slower game. Uh, today it's a much faster game. There's three, a lot more threes being shot. Um, you, you can try to take advantage of rule changes and things like that. What's coming next? You're always asking yourself those questions. Um, and so I think all, all those things factor into it. Uh, you know, you look at people have, that have gone through different opportunities where, you know, you, you want to be successful where, wherever you're going. I think analyzing the team that you have and what's the best way to move forward with it. And then also what's the best way to manage the group. I'm going to run through a few guys that you coach for worked with in your career. Give me a quick thumbnail. And when you think back to the biggest thing you learned from that guy, your first job in the NBA with Bill Musselman with the expansion wolves. All time. Great coach. I think when you look at, you know, what he did in uh, the CBA, no one's even close to win four different championships with four different teams. And then very demanding, very intense, but that's not who he was off the floor. So if you spent time with him at dinner or out socially, you would see he's far different than, you know, people come to an arena and they see one thing that, but they don't, they never got to know who he really was as a person, but a very demanding, very intense coach. This was a very short lived tenure, but Jerry Tarkanian in San Antonio. Loved him. Loved him. Uh, Again, when you look at what a great coach is, uh, and he sustained a very high level of success uh, in college, all-time great college coach, then made the jump uh, to the NBA. And, and the NBA is a far different game than college. I, th- I think college it's, is much closer to FIBA in terms of the just the rules – themselves like the the lane is far more congested because there's no defensive three and so there's uh, the lane you know is is not open uh there's more baseline out of bounds than there is side out of bounds there's no advancing of the ball so the, it's a big adjustment and then getting to know the tendencies of all the players and the coaches and so that takes time uh and i felt like he really didn't get a fair amount of time i think his great strength was his ability to communicate and to motivate. He, his players loved him and he could make you believe that you could do something great. And he obviously his track record, he always believed in giving guys second chances and he was all for the player. He was phenomenal in that way. And I think given time, I think he would have been a very successful NBA coach. I think he was fired like 20 games. I think it was about 20 games into. Was it was it that quick? It was maybe twenty games into that first season in San Antonio. You're on his staff. You go there. What do you remember about who told you he got fired? Were you were you, you? He was struggling to start with. The team was struggling a little bit. Not sure the David Robinson thing had clicked. They they had clicked yet. What do you remember about like the day he got fired? Hearing about it, who told you? Yeah, it was it was bizarre and. The thing about the hiring was Jerry got hired in April and he came in and he was there all summer, all fall. 
I came in late in the summer, uh, in, but they, they, the, the thing that was interesting, he was big on building relationships. Like he would come, uh, to the gym in the middle of the summer and he'd watch a player do an individual workout, uh, and then he'd sit there for an hour and a half and then he would talk to the guy for an hour and that's who he was. And he was always trying, he was picking everyone's brain and that, that was sort of his, his makeup. And then when we started off the season, if you recall back that when he took the job, one of the things that was appealing to him was Rod Strickland. So, you know, he wanted, he's always been an up-tempo coach, uh, and that's how he wanted to play. And so that was a big hit for him. Uh, and he left in free agency that, that, that summer to go to Portland. Uh, so it was a completely different team and, uh, there was injuries involved and, uh, we started off, we had a heavy road schedule. And I think if you went back, I think we won 70% of the home games that we had. And we had a good stretch coming up where there was 14 out of the next 18 at home. But like everyone, I think we were nine and 11 with a heavy home, home schedule coming. And I, I was shocked when it happened, you know, 20 games into it. Uh, but I guess it's the NBA, so never be shocked by anything. Um, and then, of course, you know, John Lucas came in and John did a terrific job the rest of the way. Yeah, you, you were with John there and then in Philadelphia. Um, you, you talk about somebody who could connect with people. Uh, John was he, – he certainly has done it in his post-coaching career – uh, with with helping those with substance abuse and addiction, uh, what, what was it like working for him? What was the locker room like with John Lucas? Well, it, it was really his first coaching experience, and John is a ball of energy. Uh, but I think that's how he connected was because he really cared about uh, each player, uh, and then he just brought so much energy to the group and. Uh, he had overcome a lot of things in his own life. Uh, and he, John's the type of guy he would help anyone. If you, you ask John, he would, he'd give you the shirt off his back and just a, a great human being. Um, and so it, it was fascinating to, you know, watch him go into it. Like he, he did a lot of things then that, you know, we, we had timeouts where, you know, players ran the timeouts and a lot of different things that he, tried he wasn't afraid to think outside the box and i think that was a you know a really good trait that he had and, and then jeff van gundy in new york I, I i imagine for anybody you had worked with before jeff to me was your kindred spirit that was the guy who we we are very aligned in style what we believe in how we would do things um, is that what you felt right away when you were around Jeff, that that connection, that you just fit together? Not only aligned, but like I had gotten to know Jeff when I was an assistant coach at Harvard, and I would go down to uh, Providence College where he was an assistant coach. And I just remember how they were doing everything. He was working for Rick Pitino then, and he was phenomenal, like on the court. And then, of course, to go to New York and Jeff had worked with Pat Riley there for a long period of time and a short period of time with um, uh, Don Nelson. But that staff that he put together was just incredible. So you had uh, Jeff who had worked for Pat Riley, 
you know, Don Nelson, John McLeod, Rick Pacino. You had Brendan Malone who worked for uh, Hubie Brown and Chuck Daly. Uh, you had Don Chaney uh, who had been, you know, with the Celtics and, and Bill Fitch. And then, uh, you know, Jeff Nix had been with uh, Digger Phelps at Notre Dame. And so when you went to, to work every day, you felt like you were going to the best clinic in the world. Like you could say, you know, like you, how would, how would Pat Riley handle this? What would Chuck do in this situation? You know, like uh, listening to Brendan talk about the Jordan rules recently in the last dance. Those were conversations we had all the time in the office, you know? So you, you just felt like as, as a coach, you were learning every day. And then add to that, the, the great players that were there, you know, Patrick, uh, and Oak, Larry Johnson, Alan Houston, Spreewell, Canby, the list goes on and on. Those guys, and they had been in so many big games. Uh, you know, like it, it was just a great atmosphere every day. And there was great appreciation for that. No, that's, uh, that's great stuff, Tibbs. We, listen, we could go on all day here. I appreciate you taking so much time out. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll see you back in the gym here soon or geez, I'll see you anywhere. Hopefully. We, we, we can go somewhere beyond the radius of our homes, but, uh, it was a lot of fun to do this with you, Tibbs, and, uh, let's, let's do it again. Thanks, Walsh. I appreciate you having me. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, former Bulls and Timberwolves coach, Tom Thibodeau. You can listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcast. We'll catch you soon.